1: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1-12. through 12.
0: One of the things we should really reflect on is the power of speech. Its power is very positive in terms of prayer, praise, worship, and leadership but it's also capable and prone to lies, deceit and manipulation. You know, it's interesting, you and I when we're first born, we have a very very high input rate. If you take the way we gather information, our eyes, most conspicuous our eyes, ears, proprioceptive whatever, the bit rate going into our brain into our computer Can be measured in the millions of bits per second. The the bandwidth of of three-dimensional to a double image input is enormous. The output rate is very, very limited. It's measured. The input rates measured in the millions of bits per second. The output rates measured in the thousands of bits per second, much smaller. Which means that our brain has, as we grow from an infant, as we grow, is programmed to do enormous, be enormously effective at summarizing putting things together because of that imbalance. Our input rate is far higher than the output rate. But as we explore our output rate, constricted though it may be, it is primarily verbal. Even those that are fast on a keyboard are discovering the software around where you can talk and it'll type it for you. They're finally getting that working pretty well. The output rate of our mouth is very, very high. It's our most fluent form of expression. Even though body language and other things are important, our ability output is uh, primarily verbal. And with that, we do major damage. Major damage. James is going to deal with this whole issue with six pictures to highlight three uh, basic powers of the tongue. In the first few verses, he's going to talk about the power of the tongue to direct. He's going to talk about a bit, like on a horse, a horse's bridle, and he'll talk about the rudder on a ship. He opens up in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, and by that he means teachers, I believe, knowing that we shall shall receive the greater condemnation. You know, for probably about 30 years, I taught Bible studies. And if you listen to my old tapes, you'll know I took great pride that I'm not a teacher. I took the posture that all I was trying to do is get you to do your own homework. And I, and I used to quip about that a little flippantly, saying that I read about what James said about teachers, and I'm not a teacher. I just want to stimulate you to do some learning. Big difference. I have to, you know, yield to the truth, obviously, especially, in the, I think even probably then, but also in these years, I have to admit that my, I'm going to be accountable as a teacher. And that's scary. Because I know there's many times that I'm not necessarily correct. Even some positions of the past that I've Revised to some to some measure, that accountability is of concern. So, if you're teaching, whatever you're teaching, not Bible or whatever, you're in a position of accountability as well as responsibility. And so, then he goes on. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. And I'm sure he's speaking hypothetically, because I don't any perfect men here. Can I see a show of hands? <laughs> now he's going to talk about the tongue, but I think he's speaking broadly. I don't think he would exclude the pen from the spoken word. And I have to tell you, I just have to get this off my chest, I find myself staggered at the stuff that gets mailed through the federal mails that masquerades as Christian newsletters, attacking openly, libeling members of the body of Christ. You know, Matthew 18 has a very explicit procedure uh, for people who have a bone to pick of some kind. It's not public. I guess I'm sensitive to this because for several decades, two or three decades, I taught the Bible, but as a layman, as a hobby thing. I I made my living and my full-time profession was as an executive. Putting companies together, whatever, doing all the usual things people do, Whether, you know, Uh, That's professional executives, professional directors, what have you. And my Christian life was personal, and it was hobby or, or lay, if you will. About seven years ago, I switched gears where I started doing this full time. And the Lord's blessed that, and I believe he's called me to it, so that's all great. But I have to tell you, the adjustment I've gone through emotionally, ethically, really bothers me. I had less ethical problems in the secular world than I have been confronted with in the last seven years. People not keeping their commitments, people saying falsehoods about people, in print. If it was a secular world, I could have made a fortune with lawsuits. Don't do that in the Christian world for lots of reasons. First of all, some of these, uh, you do them a favor by giving that, com- that much visibility. Really, you know... The, uh, but the libel and the slander that is commonplace within the so-called Christian community staggers me. In the secular world, they're not all peaches and creams; so They're rough and tumble guys there. But they're smarter than that in general. There's low life there too. But I mean, the real winners may not be moral men. Don't misunderstand. I'm not building a, putting a pedestal. But they've learned the efficient, effective way to win is to have some principles and ethics that you operate by. They may be slow to give a commitment, but when they give it, you can count on it. Anyway, he argues that you can tell the person by his words. If a person has control of his tongue, you can probably get, uh, James is saying, he's able to bridle the whole body. The flip side, I think, is what he's also saying. When When you encounter someone who can't control his tongue, it should raise substantial doubts about the rest of his character. That's what James is saying. And that's another reason why, as Christians, our mouths are so important. And how many times have you seen someone that you may respect in this Christian situation for many reasons, and then you hear him say something that just punctures the bubble—a slip of the tongue or something—that that, that uh, it's still forgivable. I'm not trying to build a you know a legalistic case here, but how, how you know how how that destroys his testimony of his walk and the rest. Verse 3, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. In other words, he's drawing an analogy here. How a small piece of metal in a bridle can control this big, powerful animal. Which but for those arrangements would be wild and dangerous. And yet, handled properly, he's not only not dangerous, he's controllable, useful, productive, what have you. he's, He's drawing an analogy here. Words turn into deeds. In ourselves and also in others. This is probably one of the great tragedies of our entertainment media. The entertainment media executives say that our entertainment mirrors the population. Nonsense. The percentage of murders and rapes and immorality on the television is way out of proportion to the that in the population, as gross as our population is. No, that's nonsense. We're implanting ideas, we're making those things seem common. There's a well, I won't start on that one. Uh, verse four. James goes to behold also he used the bit as an example he's going to use a similar kind of example he says behold the ships which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds yet they are turned about with a very small helm whithersoever the governor listeth." I don't know if you've ever been to a big shipyard most of us are familiar with boats you know in a lake sense or something the size of the rudder compared to the boat is pretty modest what's really amazing when you see a ocean going vessel in dry dock Here's this huge, huge vessel. Take a look at the rudder. It's, it's, it's big in absolute terms. It's trivial in terms of the size of the ship. And yet that rudder is used to control the ship. In storms, cross currents, high winds. It's amazing. you know, Just to realize that the helm, which is what controls the rudder, is, is uh, that modest. And what he's saying here, again, he's drawing that analogy of the tongue. You know, during the Second World War, you've probably seen posters, uh, loose lips sink ships. They also wreck lives. Betrayal of a confidence. The innuendo can do huge, huge damage. It's interesting how the bit and the rudder can control, uh, can overcome, in effect, uh, contrary forces. The wild nature of the horse or the winds or currents, if you will, that would drive a ship off course. But um, a runaway horse or a shipwreck, of course, can mean injury and death to pedestrians or passengers. So these things are small in contrast to what they're controlling, and yet they hold the destiny uh, far out of proportion to their weight or or apparent uh, uh, significance. I think what James is saying is just a few words at the right place at the wrong time can affect the lives of an accused, His family and his friends, they can place a nation at war, or they can redirect the lives of a child. How even a yes or no, or a nod, or something, at the right moment, can influence an entire life. Let's take the other side. Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts 2. He preached. He spoke. And 3,000 people found eternity, were saved through that. On April 21st of 1855, Edward Kimball went into a Boston shoe store and led a young man to Christ. His name was Dwight L. Moody. When you start talking about this kind of thing, you you quickly discover, you quickly find yourself leapfrogging all through the book of Proverbs. It's amazing to me. It was amazing to me. I thought I was familiar with the book. It was amazing to me. I realized how much of the book of Proverbs deals with the tongue. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Proverbs 15.1 Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs twelve twenty two. In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. Proverbs ten nineteen. Well, okay. So these are two of the six. The bit and the rudder. Now James takes two more to demonstrate the power of the tongue to destroy. And uses fire and beasts as his two examples in the next few verses, five through eight. James verse five says, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. You know, fire can start with a small spark and destroy a city. I can remember as a kid, I I, I don't know how old I was. I must have been like four, really small. But I somehow got some matches. And across the street from our house was a vacant lot, a fairly large vacant lot. And I can remember striking a match and setting that lot on fire. I just, ooh, is this fun? You know, I figured I could stamp it out and it got away from me. And I have just vague memories. I remember it, but it was very early apparently. But suddenly... There's a roaring fire, there are fire engines, there are upset neighbors, no real damage, fortunately. I explained to my mom, it just took one match. (laughs) And I'll never forget that. Well, um, a fire started in a barn in Chicago. The story, it was, a, it was a cow that kicked over land. I understand that it actually was some the kids that were smoking in it. but that, anyway, at 8: 30 p.m., on October 8th of 1871, and that fire spread. Over 100,000 people were left homeless. 17,500 buildings were destroyed, and th- over three, about 300 people, somewhere between 250 and 300 people died. It cost the city over 400 million dollars, and in those days, that dollar is probably worth 20 times what it is today. By the way, that same day, not, not as well known, it was a dry autumn uh, day that uh, a spark ignited a raging fire in the north woods of Wisconsin, which burned for an entire month and uh, taking more lives than the famed Chicago fire. Uh, a, a, this firestorm uh, destroyed billions of yards of uh, precious timber all from one spark. It wasn't as well known, it wasn't as, you know, obviously for obvious reasons, but it is also in the records if you look it up. Words, our words should also start fires. In fact, uh, in verse 6, James says, It sets on fire the course of nature. I want to tell you another story I came across that uh, I thought gets the point across very well. There were four guys that met by chance on a Saturday night in Denver at the Denver Railway Depot. Hal Stevens, Jack Tournay, John Lewis, and Hal Wilshire. Real story. They were newspaper reporters for the Denver Post, the Denver Times, the Republican, and the Rocky Mountain News. Each had been set, uh, sent by their editor uh, to dig up a story, any story, uh, for the Sunday editions. This was Saturday night. They needed a story for, by the, for tomorrow morning's edition. And so the reporters were in the railroad station, hoping to snag some visiting celebrity or something, uh, Frank Freddy or somebody that was coming through, and uh, that might arrive by train. But none arrived. And so the, the four reporters, you were know, competing papers, they happened to meet met, and they were commiserating, and all were facing an empty-handed return to their city desk. And uh, Al de- uh, declared that he was going to make up a story and hand it in, just make up something colorful. The other three laughed at him. That's ridiculous. Someone suggests they all walk over to the Oxford Hotel and have a beer. So they did. Jack said he liked Al's idea about faking a story, but why didn't each of them fake a story and get off the hook? John Jack said, you're thinking too small. Four half-baked fakes didn't really cut it. What they really needed was a real whopper that they all could use. eh? Another round of beers. (laughs) A phony story, of course, uh, could be uh, too easy to check. So they started discussing something foreign, uh, some foreign angles that uh, would be difficult to really verify. China was distant enough. So as you read, yes, we'll write something about China. John leaned forward, gesturing dramatically in the dim light of the barroom, and said, Try this one on. A group of American engineers stopping over in Denver en route to China. The Chinese government is making plans to demolish the Great Wall. Our engineers are bidding on the job. Harold was skeptical. Why would the Chinese want to destroy the Great Wall? John thought for a moment, They're tearing down the ancient boundary, to symbolize international goodwill, to welcome foreign trade. Another round of beers. By 11 p.m., the four reporters had worked out the details of their preposterous story. After leaving the Oxford bar, they'd go over to the Windsor Hotel. They would sign four fictitious names to the hotel register. They'd instruct the desk clerk to tell anyone that asked that four New Yorkers had arrived that evening, had been interviewed by the reporters, and had left early the next morning for California. The Denver newspapers carried the story. All four papers and on the front page. In fact, the Times headline that Sunday read, Great Chinese Wall Doomed, Peking Seeks World Trade. Of course, the story was a phony. A ludicrous fabrication concocted by four capricious newsmen (laughs) in a hotel bar. But their story was taken seriously and was picked up and expanded by newspapers in the eastern United States and then by newspapers abroad. Yeah, whoops is right. When the Chinese themselves learned (laughs) that the Americans were sending a demolition crew (laughs) to tear down their national monument, most of them were indignant. Some of them were enraged particularly incensed, were members of a secret society, a volatile group of Chinese patriots who were already wary of foreign intervention. They, inspired by the story, exploded. They rampaged against the foreign embassies in Peking. They slaughtered hundreds of missionaries. In two months... 19,000 troops from six countries joined forces, invaded China with the purpose of protecting their own countrymen. The bloodshed that followed, sparked by the journalistic hoax, hoax invented in a bar room in Denver, became the white-hot international conflagration that's known to every high school student as the Boxer Rebellion. Um, There's a little background here. There was a band of people called the Ai Ho Chiang, which which means righteous and harmonious fists. They believed a mysterious boxing art rendered them invulnerable. And the group's origin was supposed to have been maybe originally a self-defense organization uh, uh, during the Taiping uh, Rebellion, the White Lotus sect, they call themselves. At first, these boxers, as the Western media called them the boxers, and so that became known as the Boxer Rebellion. They first addressed their hostility against the Christian converts, who had, you know, caused many people to abandon their traditional belief system, and, and so they roamed the countryside, killing Chinese Christians and foreign missionaries. And from all this anti-Christianist area, it it uh, it, uh, it just started to escalate against everything foreign: churches, uh, railways, mines, whatever. And uh, they recruited. Disenchanted from all segments of society. There was a lot of, there was a, there was a drought, so many people were starving and hungry, so they were open to this kind of, of uh, a thing. And this is the 1899 1900 time period. Local authorities refused to stop the violence at first. The Manchu court was uh, alarmed by the uncontrollable popular uprising, but they took satisfaction at seeing revenge taking, being taken for their humiliation before the foreign powers. And there's, I won't get through all the politics, but the empress and the emperor were at odds, and they end up backing. The, they thought the, she was impressed with the boxers' successes, so she not just was neutral, they actually started backing the boxers. And that uh, foreign powers, you know, got even, the whole thing starts to escalate. That started a very famous eight-week uh, siege on uh, Peking. It, the whole thing obviously got way out of hand and then the, the United States in the act and I won't uh, go through the whole history here but uh, it, uh, finally this German settled down in September of 1901 ultimately ends up humiliating it, co- it collapsed the uh, uh, Qing uh, prestige and all that and so forth but all this started by what? you know a group of guys in a bar putting together a lie obviously having no concept or what that might ignite. It's interesting to see what David prayed. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Incline not my heart to any evil thing. See, the great tragedies, I don't think any of us have any ability to grasp the evil that a few idle words can cause. About a person, his reputation, someone's marriage, the integrity of a church or a business or what have you. But David knew that the key to the, to the tongue was the heart. Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. But anyway, verse 6, James continues, The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire. Fire of hell. Our tongue potentially has more destructive power than a hydrogen bomb because the bomb's power is only physical and temporal. Your tongue's power potentially is spiritual and eternal. Your proper use of your tongue in the right situation can alter someone's eternity. Hydrogen bomb can't do that. In fact, the tongue controls the bomb, if you want to get argue about it. But anyway, you know, it's amazing within any organization, especially a church or a ministry, when certain people leave or are replaced, what a beautiful spirit of harmony. And love takes over from what previously was tense and divisive. It's amazing. Uh, The the scripture says that in Proverbs 26. Where no wood is, the fire goeth out. So, where there is no tail bearer, the strife ceaseth. I think we've all been in organizations. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you have been in an organization where there's been uh, a a turbulence or a problem? Okay, see, it's almost unanimous. (laughs) Where That one person leaves or moves away or whatever, suddenly everybody gets along. The tongue can cause disasters from sin on the inside or pressures from the outside. It's interesting that if we feel abused, let's remember too that our Lord was also similarly abused. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the things that he had to bear. One of them was how his enemies talked about him. They called him a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber. When he performed miracles, they attributed those miracles to Satan. Even when he's hanging on the cross, his enemies threw vicious taunts at him. He even records that in Psalm twenty-two. It's one of the things in there. It's interesting. He, he he describes what they're saying verbatim. Actually, anyway, verse seven. For every now, he, now, now James introduces another model. He talked about fires up till now. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things of the sea is tamed. And hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. Everyone that's married knows that. No, I'm sorry. sorry. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. No man can tame his own heart. How do you tame your heart? Turn with me to Isaiah 6. And I think there's a revealing event that occurs in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is a famous passage because it's it's where Isaiah is treated to a glimpse of the throne room of the universe, the throne of God. And it describes that in the first few verses. But when you get to verse 5, I want you this is always in the scripture where someone is confronted with the throne room of God. They always have the same effect. They're not excited are crushed. Notice what Isaiah's reaction is. Then said, I woe is me. See, in other words, what he's going to be confronted with is the righteous, the blinding righteousness of God in contrast to our sinfulness. That's the thing that grabbed Isaiah right up front here.
1: You've been listening to 6640 The ministry outreach of koinonia house and koinonia institute today's bible teacher was chuck missler teaching through the book of james download the new k house tv app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources visit the apple or android app store or search k house tv on your roku streaming device thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry